0: welcome to uproar in the studio your weekly chinese blockbuster
1: podcast i'm noah i'm Reza. I'm Andrew, and this is the Jackie Chan post-Rush Hour 3 season.
0: This week we're talking about 2015's Dragon Blade. Uh, you don't
2: have to see it, we're going to give us an office, but if you want to watch it without spoilers, listen to the show afterwards. Later we'll be talking with Henry Lai, the prolific Hong Kong composer whose Dragon Blade score was... Chef's Kiss. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, Chef's Kiss, very Hans Zimmer. After that, we're going to be talking with Brahim Chobb, a stuntman and actor who's been in tons of Jackie Chan movies. He's going to be the main villain in the next one, Vanguard, which is going to come out whenever movies can come out. And he can be seen in (laughs) Dragonblade getting attacked by a really big bird.
0: First, we're going to talk about the film Amongst Ourselves. Here's our conversation starting with the Synopsis Set in a prison colony during the Han Dynasty, Dragonblade follows Jackie Chan as Huo An, a general of the Silk Road Protection Squad who has been wrongfully imprisoned and sentenced to the fate of a slave city builder in the Gobi Desert. When the settlement is approached by a Roman legion led by General Lucius, played by John Cusack, the two generals come to a peaceful agreement to build the city together in exchange for shared supplies. Lucius explains that his legion fled to protect Publius, a boy prince who travels with them. Publius' brother Tiberius, played by Adrian Brody, pursues the Legion to kill the boy and secure his place on the throne. When Adrian Brody's army approaches, the Chinese and Roman soldiers fight side by side to protect the city and restore peace when Jackie Chan kills Adrian Brody. Horrible deaths, big music, and fighting as pageantry, this is
2: Dragon Blade. I think it was really interesting to see the Romans from, like, how the East sees them. And they're, like, pretty shitty.
1: <laughs> yeah. Although it's interesting, right? Because this there there's that exchange between John Cusack's Roman Warrior character and Jackie Chan's peacekeeper character where they're describing like why they fight and Jackie Chan goes You fight We save to... people. Right, yeah. you fight to kill, we save people. But they're projecting an image of peacekeepers whereas the Romans their propaganda was the Pax Romana, right? Mm-hmm. Like, They were all about, we're establishing peace by uniting people. We're the Romans.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like, we give out loans, right? We don't give out aid or whatever.
0: It was a weird movie, though, because it's like, for most of it, you really didn't have antagonists. Well, like, you know, just out of the, between the, the Chinese settlement
2: and the Romans, like, everybody was pretty chill. The kind of, like, antagonistic force in this throughout most of the movie is just the lack of organization among the Chinese tribes, right? It's Jackie Chan and his, what are they called? Like uh, like The
1: the Silk Road Peacekeeping Mission or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, you
2: know, like Han Blackwater to, like, maintain (laughs) order, basically. Just like in the
0: present-day China, the greatest enemy is invisible government corruption.
1: Well, the greatest enemy is Adrian Brody.
2: Uh-huh. Just, Just like in city. modern day China. Well, directly <laughs> yeah. for the Silk Road, it's like lack of development in Xinjiang or something, right? Which is like interesting in this because the outposts for the invading Romans are basically at that border, which I think is purposefully done. Because his wife is a Uyghur, I think. And they're like a Uyghurs fighting, which mm-hmm. you can kinda of tell with the they're wearing like black and you know, they're speaking turkish sounded yeah. sounding language yeah it, it, the whole system of this city is so
0: strange because you know it's a prison colony and it's like the people who are there building the city are there because they're prisoners and that's what they've been assigned to do and then there's like a big threat that it's like they have to finish the city by this date or else they're all going to be executed but then at the same time at the end of it they just get the city afterwards Yeah, it's like you did it. So congratulations. Here you go. Now you get to have the city.
1: Well, it's like now you're trustworthy. You can be an outpost on the Silk Road. You aren't allied with Byzantium or with Rome. You're allied with us, essentially, at this point. You're a rogue Roman legion at this point.
0: Well, I didn't even mean the Roman Legion. I mean, like, the Chinese prisoners who were sent to the city. It's oh, like, you sure. just get, well, the city, congratulations, you win. You win prison. Here you
1: go. <laughs> and now you get to live here. It's sort of
0: like you know, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, he beat the game, so he got the Chocolate Factory.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think in, like, actual historical terms, the city is based off of conquered Roman warriors who settled this city. And uh, the city of Li Qian, I think. Hmm. i mean there's a lot of history that they're playing with here whereas um so they present the good white guy so like um lucius, john cusack's say. character yeah. lucius he's protecting the the son right the heir of the throne pubius mm-hmm. he's like and the council yeah so they're saying that there's a peace treaty right between the parthians and the romans whereas in real life the parthians kind of routed the romans right before this battle so i think they want to make this dichotomy between the bad west as exemplified by brody's character like the imperialists basically and the good ones the he cooperative like west modern day you know, like italians buddy, it's like a buddy movie for the for the first like the middle of it
1: yeah honestly yeah, it's,
2: like... it's 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 so
1: like fun to just see them building stuff with this jaunty music
2: I, yeah, was I was watching
0: a, a double I, speed, too, so they were just like, they were really having <laughs> a it's like,
2: bang, bang. <laughs> I just don't like the way they use kids in any of these movies. They just, they suck. They just cry. This kid, this kid got fucked
0: over. This was, yeah. I did
2: not expect what they did with this kid in this movie.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is, yeah. I guess we, we're a spoiler podcast, so they threw this kid off of a cliff. Which, that
2: was fucked. That was it was a cool movie. It was kind of like though. showing we would never do this, right? We are like morally <laughs> superior as as an empire or whatever.
1: But I think what makes this movie better than like, I don't know, 1911 or Railroad Tigers is that Adrian Brody, he says that their deaths affected him more than anyone and like when the kid falls off the cliff, the look on Adrian Brody's face is and I mean maybe he just has resting sad face, but the mm-hmm. look on his face is he's doing this because of his like lust for power, but also I think he feels it. I think he genuinely feels it. He plays it as a complex character, even if it's not necessarily written as such.
0: Yeah, but I do think that that is a very good note, that Adrian Brody does have resting sad face.
2: <laughs> I mean, he's got an Oscar for it, right? Yeah, yeah the piano. <laughs> that... and it Polanski was sick to director. hear from, like, Brahim that he kind of did all of his action. And also John Cusack, yeah. who I learned is a black belt just, like, looking the shit up, and I feel like that makes the movie so much more palatable. Like, you can visibly see Adrian Brody doing the sword work. Yeah. And that execution of the Yin Po character was just... That was a great action sequence.
1: Yeah, this movie has great fights, and what's cool about them is that I, I think they do effectively contrast the style of the Romans with the you know silk road styles much more so no
0: yeah, really do. i mean there's an entire scene in there where it's just like there's essentially just stuntmen doing a showcase of those <laughs> different styles
2: yeah it's like a step up it was like step up for like 20 minutes yeah, yeah. and then
1: they present their <laughs> sword nice fight bro
2: it was also sad but you love but... to see, love oh. to see well,
1: unity. All, unity all of our favorite stuntmen like a bunch of the guys who've been on the show are part yeah. of the final battle and so we just see like, most of our guests executed for, like, five minutes in this movie.
2: Much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm, just, I'm also just thinking about how miserable of a shoot they told us it
2: was. Yeah. Well, this episode will get to that.
1: Very cool. This
2: was when it came out, the most expensive movie ever made in China.
1: Really? Really. Well, yeah. it's still relatively it's early there. Um, in, like, the Chinese film industry blowing up. And that's another interesting thing. Like, the moment that this movie came out, which is what? uh,
2: 2015?
1: Like, the Belt and Road existed at that point, but I think it shows, in the same way that, like, Chinese Zodiac slightly precedes the theft of those objects abroad, this movie slightly precedes the massive expansion of the Belt and Road project, and it just shows how tapped in Jackie Chan is to what's happening.
2: I mean, it it comes, like, less than two years, I think, after Xi Jinping's announcement of the Belt and Road, which I think he did in Central Asia, I think, in... Kazakhstan, maybe? In Astana. So, like, you know, Nur-Sultan now. Named after our favorite, you know, post-Soviet president. Our favorite ailing COVID case. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I think that there is, like, a... Like, this movie taking place in Central Asia, the Belt and Road being announced in Central Asia, like, there is a really active political role being played here.
1: But it's not simply propaganda, this movie, I think.
2: Or, like... No, it's really, it is really, like, an
0: extravagant, like, historic epic, which I think is strange because you really don't
2: get those so much anymore in the West. Well, told from an Eastern standpoint. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, never told from an Eastern standpoint. Yeah, that's why it's really cool. That's why this movie rules. But it's not great. It's ambitious in like its source material.
0: Well, it does stuff that it's like it used to be done in like Hollywood and stuff like that, where you would have like Cecil B. DeMille going out into the desert and rounding up like a couple thousand people to do a shoot. And it doesn't really achieve the scale of like the Ten Commandments, but you do have that get a shitload of people in here and do this crazy shit out in the desert.
1: But Cecil B. DeMille never... Like, none of those classic sword and sandal movies have fights like this. No, I mean, of course not. This is just like bringing a Jackie Chan stunt team perspective to a sword and sandal movie is so cool. But yeah, I'd kind of like to dig in more to the politics of it. Um,
2: Like, I mean, Islam saved... Save the Chinese in this movie when the Uyghurs flank the. This, uh, is, this is well before Islam. Well, like you know, Turks who Turks like, yeah. Are, like, there's speaking Arabic. There's no Muslims or, like, at this point. There's like Arabic in all the writing in this, or maybe version, I guess. But like you know, there's a lot. Of, there's the music is very you know like belly dancer vibes. <laughs> um, what I so find much.
1: interesting is the the role that it sets out for China in terms of it's defining a role for not only Han Chinese, but all Chinese, interestingly, going beyond the sort of... Because they include Tomer among the... Tomer Oz, who will be on the show in a couple of episodes. Yeah. They include him among the peacekeeping mission, and he's not at all Han Chinese looking.
2: Well, Jackie Chan plays a Hun in this, right? Like a Hun orphan refugee who's been employed by the Han dynasty basically right from every perspective i think it's kind of about han superiority really how so uh like he's not a han but he's enforcing you know han hegemony in the region right as like a protector of its, but it's... trade routes
1: I don't know if it is hegemony necessarily. I I think it I is think like I think it's
2: portrayed as like benevolent, you know, kind of like peacekeeping for optimal trade routes, but like at the end of the day it's the Han enforcing it, right?
1: But okay, so like his peacekeeping organization is sent to jail essentially by the ruling powers. You know, it's not like they are a representative of Han hegemony. They are a representative of cooperation on the is Silk true? Road. They're sent to this prison camp we were talking about. And so I think what he's representing, I think, is much more so cooperation on the Silk Road and sort of international cooperation, which does not reflect what's happening in China now with the Belt and Road project, because I think that is very much a Han (laughs) project, right? But I think it is projecting that idea of, you know the best among equals the way that they talk about the brotherhood of nations when they build projects in africa right
0: yeah it is sort of it is sort of a dated perspective because this film is so centered around like cooperation between china and the west and it's like they build the city together they fight against adrian brody together (laughs) um but now the Chinese policy around that is sort of more centered around
2: domination
0: and like showing the West Chinese superiority.
2: I mean, it's still portrayed by the Chinese as uh, you know development project, right? It's not it's not built as a extension of our power, rather like uh, using like Central Asia as a route to Europe, right? Like the four thousand mile like ancient Silk Road kind of thing. Yeah,
3: like they... I
2: don't think it's. I don't think they really project force yet, uh, in rhetoric,
1: right. In rhetoric, they still use that rhetoric of brotherhood, especially in the developing world. That's true. But I don't know if that is so much the case Mm -hmm. in like with the new projects in Italy, you know, I, I think those projects in Italy are much more a show of domination. They don't use that sort of rhetoric around it because it's not, it's becoming a third-world country, but it's not thought of as a third-world country. It's thought of as part of the EU. Well, it, I guess that's the honest. irony
0: of them choosing the Romans as the partner here. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting that they, the Romans sing in Latin. I, it felt like they wanted to distance the lineage of Western nations now from these people, I think. I think they wanted to display them as a separate entity
1: wait what would the romans sing in english
2: i guess yeah i mean they speak in english right in like gladiator or some shit
1: i suppose i think the soundtrack of gladiator might have some like latin choral elements Um, Mm -hmm.
0: i think i mean i think it makes sense here they're just they are trying to sort of root it in the period i feel like
1: yeah doing that I also thought it was amazingly powerful at the end after Adrian Brody is like bleeding out, where it's like, uh, and the subtitle on my screen, which I had like running subtitles because I couldn't get it to only subtitle the um, Mandarin and Turkic parts, it, mm-hmm. the running subtitle was gasping out indistinct patriotic song, and you <laughs> with like blood sort of spurting in out of his mouth a little bit. It was That's the death of a hero
0: gasping out indistinct patriotic song.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, he's uh he's accountable till the end, as the mm-hmm. line goes. I also think we could spend a little bit of time talking about John Cusack. Like I haven't seen him in a role basically I realize since like any role he's played since about two thousand. Like I still think of him as the high fidelity guy
0: and he's just i would think about him as John Malkovich guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it's that era of like him as like a bit of a scrub kind of. And here yeah. he's like he it's a powerful performance. He's got a growl to him.
0: Yeah, it's like the post 80s heart throb reinvention that I really think of as like John Cusack, but I'm
2: not really used to action star Johnny.
1: You're right. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: So kind of like his second coming or something right like become big in china but i don't know if that worked out i mean it it didn't yeah it didn't really it should have
1: maybe it could have it was a good attempt good idea
0: well i don't even know if that's what his goal was um it might have just been like a gig or it might have just been
2: well he was doing like a lot of tv in the u.s at the time he's spending months in the desert no
0: absolutely he definitely got a good paycheck from this oh as did adrian brody i'm sure But, you know, you don't really see many American stars, like, decide, oh, I'm going to be a Chinese star now. Like, that didn't happen with Matt Damon, that didn't happen with Willem Dafoe, that didn't happen with... Who is that guy in Wolf Warrior 2? Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo. And he was in Wolf Warrior 2, and he didn't... I think it's just a a one-movie thing. But John
2: Cusack is so high-profile.
0: I honestly think that American celebrities do these movies just so they can raise their market value in the United States because they know that American action movies they do from that point on will do better in China.
1: Well, it's also like George Clooney doing watch ads in Japan or whatever. It's like nobody's going to see it.
0: Well, I don't know if this is even one of those like nobody's going to see not I don't think
1: this one is, but I think Great Wall or Frank Grillo or whatever, that's probably what was going through their minds.
0: So, I mean, it was always going to be seen in the United States because it was always going to theaters in the U.S., whether or not it should have
1: <laughs> i mean I, I suppose we have to talk about jackie chan's two wives
0: yeah jackie chan has two wives in this movie
2: <laughs> both of his wives are like uyghurs well the one seems to be han the like school teacher one. Oh, the first one yeah yeah they yeah. specifically do say that but the the one whose veil he takes off and yeah. you know is contractually obligated to marry <laughs> is definitely a turk
1: yeah in this movie he's the accidental polygamist
0: I don't know if that can even be said to have any ideological content, because it really was just set up as a sort of deus ex machina for her to come back and save his ass.
1: Yeah, she's a cool fighter. Also, she's like the singer that ties him and the general up in Little Big Soldier.
0: Oh, okay, cool. Oh, yeah, 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 she is.
1: This is a very different role for her. Potato girl or whatever, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: it's weird when people show up in multiple jackie chan movies because he doesn't really have a consistent cast outside of a few people who come with him for a few movies like winston chow he's like in a few movies with jackie chan but you don't consider him to be part of jackie chan's retinue in the same way that like rob schneider tags along with adam sandler
1: (laughs) yeah no i think she might have been in one more later too briefly This is also the peak of Jackie Chan not hurting anybody in his fighting. Like, he does take down Adrian Brody in the end in a really fucking cool move. He gets his arm to swing in the wrong direction, essentially, mid-wrist. But for the most part, a lot of his fighting is all about... Like, in the fight he has with John Cusack for the first time they meet, there's a moment where he just slaps him with the dull side of the sword, the, Mm -hmm. the surface of the sword, rather than cutting him and this is all about Jackie Chan being a model of non-violence for kids.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of uh birdemic like scenes. Birds use this war tactic. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, most-
1: Brahim gets attacked by a bird. <laughs> that was Brahim. Loses
2: his fight. Uh, There's a lot <laughs> of cool, like battle tactics in this. They like slide on the shields to make like a tank. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. forgot about that one. And they're just plowing through roman soldiers and they're just flying off cartoonishly
0: (laughs) i think that actually was a roman tactic really i know that at least in hong kong the protesters are doing something like that too with umbrellas
1: well i don't think you can push through an umbrella like that no they're not
0: sliding on umbrellas but they're like (laughs) opening up a, a bunch of umbrellas in front of a crowd and on top and then poking umbrellas through the front to hit people with.
1: Oh, sure. Well, I think the umbrellas are largely to not get tear gassed in that context. No. But yeah, I'm sure there's all sorts of creative things you can do with an umbrella. I mean, just look at Gene Kelly. Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Both in the same vein. Yeah. Gene Kelly
1: and Mary Poppins. Similar era. Um, we could
0: talk about how they have the generals fight instead of having the armies face off.
1: Oh, yeah. That was interesting. That's a trope of, like, medieval warfare movies and sword and sandal movies. I don't know how realistic it is. I don't think generals were actually out front of their armies. That would be stupid. It's
0: really cool. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's like some Richard
2: the Lionheart shit. It's how wars should be fought. And, and also, <laughs> like General Petraeus should have yeah, gone up to Saddam Hussein and been like, "This is the end of the bath party." <laughs> that would be cool. Trump and G should just wrestle.
0: Yeah, I don't know. After guns got invented, it's it's a lot less cool.
1: Well, duels are guns fun though. Ruin everything.
3: <laughs> well,
0: I mean, the whole thing is that it's like this movie kind of showcases how much better fight choreography you can get <laughs> when it's really just a one-on-one fight versus an entire army clashing. Like, you get cool stuff when it's the armies fighting, but you really don't get long,
2: drawn-out, intense battles. There's probably also filming constraints, because, like, if they spent that long already on the movie and they didn't really have massive battle sequences every time, you can imagine this would take, like, (laughs) three, four times the time to just film. It It makes makes me think that the filming wasn't done as well as possible. I suppose, but
1: like the the alternative, as I imagine it, would be those Lord of the Rings battle sequences, where it's just troops moving overhead, and it's not close up. This is right in the battle. They have such good stuntmen that they can just fuck each other up. Yeah, I mean, well,
0: that was the entire third Hobbit movie, where they didn't even have any plot. (laughs) People
2: fighting each other. Yeah, but
1: overhead (laughs) shots, you know? Yeah, Yeah. that's true
2: yeah yeah this is filmed cool and brian did say that there were like sandstorms and shit they had to deal with so that <laughs> must yeah suck. up next is our conversation with henry Lai, composer of the film score so if we just jump into it i was pretty curious i wanted to ask you how you got into soundtrack composition after getting a degree in architecture
4: well i had a band while i was in college now university and there I met a he's also a studying architecture at that time a guy named Tony and he, he went in a lot of those uh, a competition and he met up with another guy called Joey and they wanted to form a, form a band and and that guy Joey already got a record contract so I said oh, why, why don't you try my pal uh, Henry he's a guitarist you know so I joined a band and we had the record deal and went into the music business, basically, but then again, you know the, uh, the band wasn't very successful, didn't sell many records, and so I went into an uh, independent uh, producer, uh, writing songs, composing. But then again, I think my songs weren't that popular. you know maybe I'm not a commercial guys, so I didn't get much job. <laughs> so you know it was a really hard time. but so happened that uh, where I live, I, I lived near Shan, mm-hmm. which. Means hill of five stations, you know. On, on that, there are five radio stations, TV stations, Hong Kong radio, um, uh, TVB, um, you know, all, all the uh, radio stations, all the TV stations on, on that, that place near where I live. And prior to that, I, I had a interview, something, you know, on a newspaper about how I went from architecture to, to music. And one of the producers of Hong Kong Radio saw it. And she was producing a, a program about architecture and music. So I said, ah, Henry Lai is the guy. So he asked me to host that uh, episode, that program. And then I got acquainted with the, uh, the radio guy, the, the TV station guy. And then I st- started getting a lot of scoring for their shows. So that's how I got into uh, composing and scoring for TV. And then at the same time, I had a little studio at home. And I kind of had a friend and assistant producer in movie. He came to me one day and said, I'm working on a film now. Uh, he's already got someone scoring the, the movie, but he, he's from Taiwan. And the producer wants an, an, an additional music. And since the guy is now in Hong Kong, he didn't have the studio with him. So can he come to my studio for a little bit of, you know, additional music? So I don't say why not, you know, and I'll be the engineer. So I ended up the uh, director came to my place and, you know, listened to music. And become friends, and then for his next movie, he hired me for scoring. Well, that's how I got into the, uh, you know, the movie music, scoring. That was like uh, 15 years ago.
0: So how did you meet Jackie Chan and start getting involved with his films?
4: Oh, Jackie Chan. Well, you know the the uh, director I just mentioned. You know, he came to me um, mm. for his next movie, scoring his next movie. He's the re- director for this movie, the, the Dragon Blade. So that's how I met Jackie Chan. I didn't really know him, but I, you know, I knew him from the movie. Because it's funny, for the launching of that of that movie, they had a, uh, a party in Shanghai. And so the director said, oh, Henry, you must go there, you know, to meet, meet Jackie Chan and everybody. So I went. Jackie Chan was a really, you know, a very kind person. He tapped me on the back and asked me to sit with him. He said, oh, he's, he's the composer for this movie. You know, And I was really honored, you know. I feel like, wow, I'm sitting next to Jackie Chan. And then, because uh, he, he wanted me to write a song for him to sing in a the movie, theme songs, so he treated me really good. But then, <laughs> at the end of the day, I went to his home. You know, I went to his home, and after chatting a bit, he suddenly pulled me aside and said, "Hey, kid, you better do good music."
2: <laughs> he said, do good music,
4: Oh, I'll fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> What I was like, oh my God, that's a lot of pressure.
2: <laughs> oh my God, uh, it's okay.
4: He it was joking, maybe, but a lot of pressure.
2: <laughs> how,
1: how involved was he in that songwriting process as a musician, contributing musical ideas to it?
4: He, he didn't say anything. He just, you know, said just write me a good song. You know, that's all. Not much uh, input because. You know, all all the original idea, you know, that comes from a movie, comes from his character in in the movie. I wouldn't say straightforward, but, you know, it's a very good guideline.
0: Yeah. So the lyrics on the pieces that you wrote, uh, I know that some of them are in Chinese, some of them are in in Latin. Did you write those as well, or did you have a collaborator who was helping there?
4: Oh, no, no, I I couldn't write Latin. (laughs) Uh, Same. For for, for the Mandarin song, you know, the Chinese one, uh, the, the... director he wrote the lyrics
2: oh, wow. for
4: the latin one I, I was looking for a collaborator because you know it's, it's not an easy language
2: <laughs> yeah
4: uh, so happened that the uh, orchestrator the, actually the orchestra con- conductor you know peter uh, polanik um, in uh, czechoslovakia he had a friend who was a professor in latin so we asked him to write, write the lyrics i think his name is feldemir flux or something but he passed away a few years ago uh yeah, he, he wrote the lyrics but the funny thing is the song, yeah, he, he wrote the lyrics for the, the Latin lyrics for for the song. But then, you know, there are a couple of scores that has a lot of shouting or something, you know, at the back, the background, the choir singing, you know. Um, those has to be words, too. It has to be Latin. But since we're running out of time, I was spending like uh, that Christmas, you know, Googling Latin words on on, <laughs> on on the net and filling in, you know, words like uh, honor and um, strength or something like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny experience. <laughs> a Chinese writing the lyrics in Latin.
2: <laughs> I mean, you've had enough of the other way around, I guess. <laughs> when Daniel Lee was speaking with you about what he wanted the film to sound like, what was he saying? What direction did he give you in terms of what the music should sound like?
4: Well, I've worked with Daniel for for a long time, and he's kind of a martial art person. You know, he's a lot of into uh, martial art movies. Martial art movies to me is kind of like Western spaghetti.
2: You know what
4: I mean? Yeah. It's like high noon, you know, for a few dollars more, that kind of mood and that kind of uh, sentiment. So uh, basically, I would say that the instruction he gave me is what was kind of like an East West because you have two cultures.
1: It's interesting, though, because there seemed to be sort of like Turkic elements to the score, like the sort of music you would have heard along the Silk Road as you were heading west. Um, uh-huh. Was that something you did a lot of research on?
4: Not quite research, but uh, yes, I, I, I listened to a lot of music to, to get a kind of inspiration from. Actually, the good thing about scoring is that you look at, at a movie, you know, you get all the inspiration from. The costume, from their acting, etc. You know, I would say that's the easier part of, of scoring to a movie because you get all the cultures, you can see them instead of just sit there imagining. Hmm.
1: And what about the Roman side of it? Did you look into what Roman music might have sounded like? Oh, I have, I did, but it sounds so boring <laughs> 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 because at that time they didn't even have
4: the uh, the twelve tone scale. You know, they were very basic chanting all that so it couldn't be a historic correct otherwise there'd be like no music in <laughs> in the movies be, like chanting and you know, like a monotone thing going on so yes i did some research but i didn't use them
0: so how about your own background with rock music does that come into this film yes actually i tried to
4: incorporate quite a bit of rock elements in, into my music you know like guitar is okay is one thing but uh, basically it's it's the kind of the percussion. Mm. Maybe the structure of the songs, you know, I always try to I- incorporate some. that's my root, I mean, you know. I love putting rock elements into. I mean, in, into all my uh, score. In fact, I scored one one of the uh, movies called The Four. You know, it's like a China uh, X Men thing, but in ancient time, you know. Mm. And I try to put in a bit of Mark Boland in it, <laughs> guitar, you know, a little bit of riff, you know, a little bit just in the background. Uh, it was fun.
2: It was Jackie Chan involved with direction of the soundtrack for this movie. No, he didn't. No,
4: I don't think he cared.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe he 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 he, uh, he
4: believed that I wouldn't do a bad job because otherwise he'd fuck me. So
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, worry. <laughs> i don't want to worry. Do you think he changed the way Daniel Lee worked in any way?
4: Mm, no, don't think so. But, I mean, I've worked with him so many years. I mean, he's, he's progressing. He's, his character, you know, I, I watch him change, you know. Before that, he was a very, very uh, demanding, tough guy, but now he's mellowing a lot. And, well, he, he told me a lot of stories about working with, uh, with Jackie Chan you know, on site. In the, and,
1: uh, in the desert.
4: In the desert, yes, yes. Mm. Uh, that, that was a um, story about, uh, you know, in the desert, there's no toilet. Right, yeah. everybody is yeah. digging a hole, take a, and took a dump, you know, <laughs> on the paper <laughs> and they just didn't cover it up good enough. Um, <laughs> oh, so
2: oh,
4: a sandstorm's coming, right? a sandstorm coming. <laughs> and then when a, storm, <laughs> uh, when a sandstorm came, you can imagine all the tissue paper, you know.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
4: and then. Jackie Chan would ask everybody to 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 go and, and and collect them, you know. This good. <laughs> At least it's <laughs> environmentally friendly. <laughs>
0: yeah. Did you ever visit that your uh, that set yourself during production? Uh, no, I didn't. No, it's too far.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they they yes. film inside mainland China, right? Yes. Have the film industries gotten closer since you started working in? film? Hong Kong and Hello, mainland?
4: Sir. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes, because mm. you, all, the, all the money came from China, you know, the, for the big budget movies. Mm-hmm. But basically, all I would say, like, um, you know, 80% of Hong Kong's movies would be like a, a joint collaboration with China, with Chinese investments.
2: Is there any backlash to that in the Hong Kong industry? Like, uh, you know, like Hong Kong was its own independent in terms of the film, like it, it had its own like, place in cinema, I think, in the world. But if 80% of production is now mainland money, there's got to be some kind of response.
4: Yes, definitely, yes. We've been complaining, like, you know, all the, uh, um, the Hong Kong character. We're losing, you know, we're losing the, the kind of uh, topics. Like, you know, in, in China, there are a lot of uh, restrictions, censorships. Like, you cannot have ghost movies. Supernatural.
1: No more jumping so, vampires? No. <laughs> uh,
4: you, you you can. But then at the end, you have to say, oh, it's all a dream. <laughs> 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 oh, it's all a dream. There's, there's, there's no vampire. I was just dreaming. you know. And then when I, when I have a cop movie, cops must be good. Must be good guys. Mm, yeah. Yeah can be no killing cops in the movies, and all bad per- person have to be arrested at the, at the end. But, you know, things like that, you know, there are a lot of uh, censorship things going on. So, so the Hong Kong movies, when, when you have the Chinese money, you have to conform to that uh, restrictions. So the script writing suffers. And i touch on gay subjects, a lot of things uh, you, you cannot um, touch.
1: Has it changed the way you personally work? Yeah.
4: Well, not really. I mean, music is, is the least to suffer.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: But, but then there, there, there's an instance that uh, suffers because of political... Uh, well, not just censorship, but, but they have... Like for the last movie, The Climber, you know... I, I really I don't want to talk about that, but since I've mentioned it... Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ended up because uh, there are two parties, you know, one from the government, another from the studio they're both competing so ended up that uh, the government side wanted to use their own composer and although i I did all the scoring i got kicked out maybe they used a few few percent of my work but so it's all very political
1: Mm -hmm. do you think that uh, led to how that movie performed in theaters in part that sort of mix of people in control
4: honestly i don't care
1: <laughs> <laughs> fair enough yeah you
0: know, have you ever felt like a push to use more influence from traditional chinese music or popular chinese music as opposed to uh western influence in your soundtracks because of this level of you know government influence
4: uh no that's um uh, mm. it's not not to that degree i mean because uh, usually i just report to, to the director you know mm-hmm studio wouldn't care unless unless they have some something on their mind but up to this moment at least i'm uh, pretty free in what i'm doing
2: how does this change reflect how the hong kong industry looks at jackie chan as a son of the industry to becoming i guess a mainland investor in hong kong cinema now
4: Uh, (laughs) oh that's very sensitive let's put it this way he's not very popular in hong kong now
1: okay yeah for obvious reasons <laughs> yeah. yeah so has but, he done less co-productions now or like it's le- used less hong kong talent i
4: i don't know but daniel lee might be working with him again but i'm not quite sure so um he has been in the business for, for quite a while he's, he's acting but he's not producing as far as i know
1: Hmm. what did Daniel tell you about did he ever talk about what he wanted to say with Dragon Blade what the sort of message he was going for with the film if there was one <laughs>
4: yes uh, he, he has a message in his movies I mean in this movie it'd be like um, you know peace on earth <laughs>
1: <laughs> was there any talk of parallels between this peacekeeping force on the Silk Road and what China's trying to do with the Belt and Road project now
4: Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that at that time. As far as I know, when you shot when you shot that movie, there's no uh, one belt, one row, one row yet. Uh, I'm not quite very sure. Very
2: early but, on, that, yeah, that yeah. Is, but, uh,
1: no,
4: no, no, nothing about that.
1: Are you still involved in the Hong Kong rock scene? I mean, obviously now I'm sure all the venues are closed, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> before you know, twenty twenty. Um, <laughs>
4: I, I used to have a band you know uh, playing ethnic music actually ethnic rock called the Tanji Tang. We, we did a lot of political issue okay. songs but i don't think it's possible anymore <laughs> mm-hmm. but still i mean I, I don't have the time for that now mm-hmm. and, um, but but i, I do wrote, I write some rock songs i mean the project now is called the assassins the song song is assassin or something like that it's got a rock uh, uh, theme song
0: so is your is your work still happening throughout uh the pandemic
4: yes i'm busy it's all fate you know mm-hmm. fate it so happened that whenever the other musicians are out of work i get a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> i mean really i mean it happened in 2007 2008 whenever there, there's a um economic crisis people going running out of jobs and music i got a lot of projects coming in I mean, I guess I'm lucky. <laughs> I'm lucky for the past months, two months, oh, two or three months really. Time, time flies. <laughs> two right. or three months. I mean, uh, everybody's at home because of pandemic, and luckily I have my studio at home, and I've been working mm-hmm. nonstop wow. for on um, three movies.
1: Are these all in post production?
4: Post production, yes.
1: Do you know of any projects that are planned for the future, like? Are people thinking uh, uh, about going back to making movies?
4: No, no. Uh, the one I have now are, are in post productions. But uh, are there so, any
0: signs that the uh, the Chinese film industry is coming back? And like, have you heard about other things starting to go into production at this point? No. Well, there are plans. You know, they're they're doing some um, pre production
4: things, but uh, nothing concrete. You know, still writing script maybe, because besides the pandemic. You know, uh, a year ago, China has the tax problem. Oh, you know, yeah,
1: with Fan Bingbing. Yeah,
4: yeah, Fan Bingbing thing. You know, and that's that's a really big hit on the on the um, on the on the industry because now, you know, before that, they try to evade tax. You know, by having a what they call a double contract.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, yeah, the double contract is that the contract sets, you know, a, a, a million dollars, but they they actually pay. You know, two million, something like that. So now the Chinese government is backdating all that tax. They want to collect all the tax. Of course, the actors wouldn't pay that. So the studio has to pay that, pay all the tax. You know, that really kills all the studios.
1: Yeah. But even before the pandemic, were other composers, you know, getting less work? Oh
4: yes, yes. A lot of them, yeah, and especially with the uh, some of the the younger composers. I mean, the younger composers, usually they cannot get the bigger budget films, you know, because of the experience and all that. So usually they they rely on scoring uh, local Hong Kong movies. But now Hong Kong movies is really like, you know, producing less than 10, less than maybe 20 a year or something like that. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, that's really bad.
1: As you see it, are more mainland uh, young composers getting a foot in the door now than Hong Kong composers?
4: Well, for the mainland China movies, yes, they're usually scoring pure Chinese you investment movies. Before, all the uh, as far as I know, all the collaborate all the collaboration you know Chinese Hong Kong movies, they they either use Hong Kong composers or you know USA composers hmm. or han Zimmer, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So I I think we could cut this into an interview at this point, but I do just want to ask Mm. one extra Mm -hmm. question. So you have a history of working with Dante Lam earlier in his career, right? I'm I'm curious why, since you guys seem to have a good collaboration going for a while, why you weren't involved Mm -hmm. with the Operation Red Sea films? Were they too political for you?
4: Yes. Well, again, sensitive issue. (laughs) But uh, yes, uh, working with him on the uh, Operation Mekong, I was really uh, disappointed with the uh, Chinese government involvement in the movies
2: mm.
4: because it's a movie based on a, um, a fake incident. Mm-hmm. And I really have a very strong opinion about that. But anyway, it ended up that um, he wasn't very satisfied with, with my music i did a very bad job but anyway he he ended up hiring another composer to finish half of the the other half of the movie so i did half the music and the other composer did the other half and then for the next movie he just dumped me (laughs) (laughs) it's understandable i think
1: Thanks to Henry Lai. Next is our conversation with stuntman and actor, Brahim Chab. So we wanted to start with how you initially got into working on Jackie Chan movies.
3: I was uh, working already since, um, I would say since 2007 as a stuntman and actor and, uh... Around the year, I would say it was like 2014, I did a movie back in the days with um, this actor called Tiger Shen. He referred me to uh, one of the members of Jackie team, which name is Hojun, uh, I think. That's his name. He's one of the stunt coordinators there. I just got an email from him asking me if I was like free to join like uh, Dragon Blade. That was the movie. And uh, he messaged me, and uh, from there, that's how we went, basically. Like, it just started from one movie by that guy messaging me.
1: Was there a moment where you were sort of officially on the stunt team?
3: Honestly, no. Like, I I did, um, I think I did, like, over, like, five films with him. But um, there was never really a moment that I was officially in, like... I, I think most of the guys who are like in the team are basically most guys are based in China nowadays. Some of them are based in Germany as well because there is like a, a big network of like German guys who are in JC team. Uh, but uh, uh, honestly, like to be part of the team, like it was more of like uh, being like a family or something like this Mm. in which for myself it was more like coming and going coming and going coming and going so I never been like part of their team but I really work a lot with them so I guess it's like kind of being on probation or something like this
2: (laughs) (laughs) is is it like a big deal you know like is it something that if you're working on stunts you know you look towards maybe getting into a Jackie Chan film or did it really just happen by chance like you said
3: Um, honestly it happened just by chance and um, I I can just tell you it's nothing to do really with uh, skills or like being the best at something it's mostly like they call you and then they see like how you're doing in front and off camera and I think the off camera is what matters the most like for the Jackie Chanston team because they like easygoing people it's kind of like I said they like to be like a family so when they call you one time if you're if you have, like, you know, good manners and good mindset and you're more like a person that is, you know, a helpful person, you know, that's what they are looking for more. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like being good at something, you know, it's very important, you know, being good at stunts, being good at acting or at fighting. But off-camera, that's really what I want to precise. Off-camera, that's what they really... Uh, look forward to like that you're a good person and that that you don't tarnish their name. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, what were your first impressions of Jackie Chan and his stunt team when you met them?
3: When I met them, honestly, I was uh, thinking like, okay, I don't know how to explain this, but when you meet them, it's like you're gonna feel like, oh, I need to prove myself or something like this. You want to do more than you're being asked and the best thing to do is just do what you're being asked like don't try to impress them or something because these guys have seen everything there is to see you know they've been doing movies like for like jackie has been doing movies like since the 70s so there's nothing much you can show him that is going to impress him to be honest they were very professional and compare like to to the old school ways like, you would be very surprised how much Jackie Chan him nowadays. It's actually very, very, very safe. I mean, it's one of the safest team I ever worked. Back in the days, if you remember the old movies, like there was all these huge wrecks and people hurting themselves and every movie somebody's being sent to sent to, to, to the hospital or something like this. But, you know, I think Jackie was kind of like, I think, tired of having this image of, you know, wrecking people and like wrecking himself and all that. So I think, you know, nowadays, like, you know, they, they found a very, very good balance of like making good stunts, good movies with like being safe. I think uh, my impression of it was like at first when I arrived was, oh man, I, I get, I'm getting ready to get hurt here. But in mm-hmm. fact, you know, it was like super safe. Like they, even the language barrier, there was none because most of them speak English nowadays.
1: It seems like you in both Dragonblade and Bleeding Steel have sort of very prominent stunts, like in Dragonblade where your you know, your throat gets cut right center stage. Uh-huh. Is, is there sort of um I don't know, like a hierarchy of stunt guys within the team? Of like guys who are sort of featured stunt guys and guys uh, who do stunts in the background, maybe?
3: Yeah, I think it's all about like, okay, I did a lot of films... uh uh, as a stunt actor, so I, I have like you know, I, I know how to act. Like I, I'm, I'm not saying like I'm like Leonardo DiCaprio or something <laughs> like this or Al Pacino, but I can act for action movies. Therefore, uh, when I'm coming on a movie, they they usually call me not to be a rigger or to be a stunt guy. They mostly call me to to be featured in the movie, and uh, I think part of the reason why they do this is uh, because they need foreigners who can do action and who can act to put in their movies because most of Jackie movies are being shot in you know overseas like Dragon Blade was shot in the Gobi desert in China but it's a Roman empire movie yeah. therefore you're going to need a bunch of foreigners there same with bleeding steel bleeding steel uh, we shot in Australia we shot in Taiwan and there were so many like you know foreigners in the movie as well same with Vanguard, which is not released yet. I I mean, I played the main bad guy in that movie uh, by being called by the stunt team, literally. Like, I didn't do a casting. uh, I didn't do any, just got a message asking me, can you record your voice? We want to hear your voice. So I just recorded my voice and the next day I was like, okay. They were like, okay, you got the job and we're going to send you a contract and you go through it. So the way it works, it's not really like there's a hierarchy. They are like, oh, okay, this guy looks a certain way. He looks, he's tall. He looks a <laughs> bit evil. He can be a bad guy. He's much better. We can put him in this movie. And uh, it's a lot of uh, trusting and uh, that's why you always have to be like very kind of, like the stunt coordinators in China, especially in Jackie's team, has so much power that they literally can put you in or out like when it comes time for action like the director is just going for sleep like he's not even on the monitor no more like the stunt coordinator action director is taking over so um that's why you know you have to be very very respectful to them and it's kind of like their hierarchy is very like the stunt coordinator is the top guy
2: so, what role does Jackie play in the stunt team's work? How does this actually shape what the stunt team ends up doing on set and on camera? Uh,
3: well, Jackie basically, you know, is he's, he, he's a he's a mega star man. So his job is to come and do his film, and um, then the stunt team facilitate everything for him. You know, they facilitate uh, the you know the st- the action on the movie they facilitate the performers uh they facilitate you know the the stun doubling for the actors jackie's gonna fight and the whole uh, process goes like jackie really lets them do what they want to do and when he comes on the set you know he's gonna maybe when he sees the action he's gonna tweak one thing or two maybe he's gonna be like oh this is too violent i i I won't do this, or this is, I I want more comedy here, or I want uh, something less violent. And um, I think, like, Jackie has a very good um, image of what sells for him. He he knows really what sells for him. So on The Foreigner, these actors from uh, England who were gonna do a fight scene with Jackie, uh, I think it was in the hostel scene, Mm -hmm. when he's fighting in that small hostel. Yeah. Believe it or not, but the whole the Jackie team flew me all the way from Thailand <laughs> to England because they were not sure about those guys just to be on standby in case something happens. That's the thing way it goes with Jackie like if they feel that you cannot deliver the action right away you'll get like a standable standby <laughs> to do action instead of you and um some guys get very frustrated with this. I've, i I heard stories of people like getting stunned doubled doing their action and they get frustrated, then they lose it. And I think if this happens, you know, you should not even think about being frustrated. I think you should just feel about like, okay, this is a guy who's been doing movies like since the seventies, he knows everything about it. So now also he's not like the youngest guy there is. So you have to be extra safe with it. Like, uh, remember in Taiwan already when we were doing Vanguard, I can see him like riding like a jet ski in the middle of a of a rapid river, and like you're thinking about yourself like, man, I-, I can't complain being in that rapid river. man, this guy is over seventy and like riding that jet ski in the rapid like you get you get to respect the guy for what he's doing, right?
0: But how was he doing physically when you first met him?
3: i think uh, like you said i think he's adjusting you know like jackie is usually like he's very fit like i mean if you meet him the first time i met him i was shocked at the size of his forearms i was like jesus christ those forearms look metal like he's pretty like muscular like when you see him in the movies you don't you can't really see it but even right now, at the edges right now, he's in very, very good shape. He, he still works out, you know, like when we do the movies, you know, you would see him once in a while at the gym doing treadmill or stretching, you know.
0: So there were a lot of uh, of battle sequences in Dragon Blade. And we've heard that some of Jackie Chan's fight scenes can take weeks to film, sometimes even longer. Uh, were those uh, Were those sort of like grand battle scenes much faster than that? Uh, and are they less precise when it comes to one of those bigger battle scenes?
3: Oh, if I tell you about Bat- Dragonblade, how long it took, it took months. <laughs> wow. That movie was I'm. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it, it was a nightmare. And not only for me, for everybody, including Jackie, everyone. We shot in the Gobi Desert. That movie <laughs> started from February of 2014 and it ended August of 2014, seven months in the desert and let me tell you that desert is like, it's a pain we were in like Roman outfits there was no CGI no green screen, that was a real desert and the battle scenes took weeks to shoot not days, weeks like I remember the just the scene i had you saw me fighting uh sammy hung uh, the actor who have the eagle in the movie yeah that took four days just to shoot that little scene (laughs) then the battle scenes with the background fighting that took at least three weeks i remember that just that ending part then there was the other parts to shoot that took weeks that took really like a lot of time and also During the shooting, we had sandstorms, so everything has to shut down. We would go from early morning, I kid you not, five in the morning, pick up from the hotel and finish at 10 p.m., then drive an hour back to the hotel, get back home, 11 p.m. at least, sometime 11 if you're lucky, 11.30 if there was a problem on the road, and repeat every day six days a week one day off and there was no internet in the hotel there was absolutely nothing to do around that was a nightmare for everybody i mean everyone got something i mean i got my elbow completely destroyed ended up in the hospital i i heard guys uh, getting beaten by scorpions Stunned guys who were, like, uh, dehydrated. Everybody, like, from the wardrobe, he, he, even Jackie got sick. Everybody. That was a nightmare, that movie. Um, let me tell you, it was authentic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did that sort of trauma bring everybody together at the hotel?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a boot camp. Everybody, <laughs> you know, they had, like, every foreigners in the movie, like, all those stunt actors take the same bus every morning and it was fun man it was like kind of being like a navy seal like you're thinking like okay we are going to war right now and like it was like really tough man but at the end of the day like i'm glad i did it because if i haven't done that i would have never had all the opportunities i had uh, later on with jackie's stunt team you know that would be worse place to be stuck in, like right. Like I'm doing a movie with Jackie, so I kid you not, man. That that desert, like at some time I had flashes in front of me because it was so hot. Like, wow. I I would see stuff that are not there, and everybody had that. And even if you put a shade, even if you if you try to hide it, like no way, it's too hot. Like, and mm-hmm. think about the outfits, man. I mean, mm-hmm. look at Jackie's outfit in the movie. Look at the Roman soldier's outfit. Yeah. In the movie. Yeah. Look at just like a Tiberius, the Adrian Brody outfit in the movie. It was very, very tough. Man, it was, There was no green screen there. Many people would think, oh, that was, you know, shot green screen or something like CGI or whatever. No, but all of it was in the Gobi Desert.
0: How much of their own stunts did, uh, did John Cusack and Adrian Brody do in that movie as far as you know?
3: all of it yes you know that's uh that's what happens when you have like a good stunt mm-hmm. team who like train the actors and those actors actually anyway they have like pretty good uh, understanding of action so i would say this far every shot that you see Adrian brody fighting when you see him actually fighting mm-hmm. that's him wow everything that you see from far uh, or maybe from behind his back or something, that might be like a stun double. But they did the whole fighting, the whole action sequence by themselves, most of it. Especially John Cusack, you know.
2: Is this specific to Jackie Chan movies, where like the lead actors get to do a lot of their stunts, or is this is this normal?
3: Uh, no, it's it's like a like I said previously, it's depending on how good you're gonna do. Like when you start doing the action. If they see you can deliver it yourself, they let you do it as much as possible. But if they see that you start to swing your fist too close to Jackie's face or try to kick him as hard as you can, that's it, my friend. You're being (laughs) put on the side and somebody (laughs) with a wig and a Chinese looking boy is going to come to double you.
1: (laughs) Were you ever involved in any of the training of the actors?
3: Uh, no, because I came in uh, just to do uh, my stuff. I was not there from uh, from the start of the movie. I just came for a month. Like, I was four weeks there, and then I was gone. But the stunt team was in the Gobi Desert for seven months, I think, yes. Wow.
2: Uh, so Bleeding Steel and The Foreigner came out on the same year. Which came first in terms of uh, shooting,
3: or at least for you? Um. Uh, the Foreigner came first, Uh I think, yeah. yeah, the Foreigner came first. That was in February, I think, 2016. And when I was doing the Foreigner, one of the younger stun guy, his name is Max Wong. Uh, yeah. He's uh, one of the team members. He actually, just recently, actually, he actually got uh, Mortal Kombat. He's going to be Kung Lao in Mortal yeah. Kombat. So... He is the one uh, who was the stunt coordinator on the movie. So during uh, the foreigner, he told me if I was free to to do the foreigner. So I think we went to do the the foreigner in February, and then bleeding steel we went in April. In April, we went to first to um, to Taiwan to scout. I was involved in the whole process of that movie. Then we went to Australia and we stayed in Australia, China after we went to JC Center to do all the previous work, all the stunt uh, work for all the fight scenes from the movie. And then we went to again to Australia, then Taiwan, and then we finished to shoot in China. So the whole process was, I think, like seven months total. Yeah.
1: Wow. Could you tell us more about that previous uh, section of that? And can you tell us about JC Center, which I've read about and it sounds amazing, but I'd love to hear more about
3: it. Okay, so well, the previous is kind of like, you know, before uh, you do a movie, you're going to sit down and you're going to look at the script and take out every action scene there is there. And then you're going to do a previous which for every action scene, which is like, uh, you're going to shoot the action the way you want it to look uh, the day you're going to go and shoot on the location with the real actors uh, the the real set everything and you're going to try to follow that on the day of the shooting so you don't waste time you know everything uh, you need to do you need where to cu- you know where to cut the action you know how to edit it and uh, to do this process is really helping you with uh, first saving time second uh, you don't need to stop and think on the day you, you already have like clear vision of what you want to do. And uh, back in the days, the whole previous was very like uh, unfamiliar for every like Jackie Chan movie. They would be coming on the set back in the days and they would come up with the action as we speak. Like, okay, so we're going to do this punch, pa 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 pa, here, kick, punch, kick, punch. Okay. Cut at this point. Then they would sit down again and think about the next bit. That's why it would take, like, weeks and months to, like, shoot an action scene. So nowadays, you know, like, you cannot afford, like, to waste that much money anymore. So they do a, a previous now, like, in the West, like, they would shoot, like, the action at Jesse Center. And Jesse Center, which it's located in, uh, next to Beijing, that place is, like, like, a huge stadium. It's massive. It has everything inside. It has a tumbling floor for gymnastics. It has an MMA ring. It has a boxing ring. It has a trampoline, a huge pit to do flips inside. There is a wushu floor. They have boxing bags everywhere. They have wire set up everywhere. They have cameras. It's like a huge place. I even have like... Uh, Cinemas, I think, in the wow. back or something, projecting room, a studio as well, uh, hotel, restaurants. <laughs> and I think that the place was first made to facilitate, like, people wanted to learn, like, the Jackie Chan style of filmmaking. They wanted to make, like, people coming from other countries stay in the hotel, train at uh, the center, and get to learn from the stunt guys. Uh, I think that's how it started first that's what the the guy who managed the place his name is Khadjon he's one of the stunt coordinators for Jackie and uh, uh, basically they use it for all the previous work it's kind of like if you see 8711 in America it's way bigger than that like it's way way bigger 8711 is like pretty small compared to that place is like Huge, like I kid you not, that place is like a stadium. Wow! Like it has everything you need for like movie making for action. It has everything. Even there is even a bus in that uh, to do <laughs> action inside. So like the whole JC Center, it's like it's this. It's it's made like uh, to facilitate for the stunt guys to do the previous work. Also, some actors go there and train as well. Like they would bring actors to train them.
1: In Dragon Blade it's kind of interesting to me that you're again, you have a sort of featured stunt guy role in the, as the security guard in it. But I was wondering if you're also playing any of the I don't know how to phrase it, like sci-fi henchmen. If you're ever behind the suits doing stunts as well. Oh I did. Yes. Bleeding
3: Steel. I did, yes. yes.
1: Oh in Bleeding Steel, yeah, sorry. In Bleeding Steel you're
3: Sim. Yeah. Wow. Was doubling uh, the bad guy at, in the intro of the movie, mm-hmm. if you remember. Andre? The Andre actor, yes. The whole fighting sequence, I've done it. Like, if you look at it closely, you can clearly see that's not really the actor who've done it. I've done most of that action stuff. Wow. Because the makeup, the makeup was really like, if you see like the whole makeup process, you know, like, uh, I was really looking a lot like, uh, the uh, the actor who played Andre mm-hmm. which is an uh, Australian actor and when, uh, when we were going to do the action they were like oh wait a minute you really look like him and mm-hmm. you have the same height and same kind of body okay so when we put the makeup on you couldn't even tell the difference so the whole action scene I've done it yes the intro scene when he's fighting uh, with the, the police woman that was me, the whole thing was me. I think he did two close ups, that's it. I mean, on Bleeding Steel, I, I've done, I don't know how many things I've done. I've done, uh, even there is a fight scene in the opera house, when Jackie fight the the two men in black and the, mm-hmm. the woman in black, that was me as well in one of those suits. <laughs> wow! <laughs> because the suits were made uh, we we made the suits in Australia with a company uh, who make like you know sci-fi suits, and there was me and another stunt guy uh, who worked on the movie as well. We were the first guys to come uh, on board of the movie, so when they did the suits first, the two first suits they did, they made them on my uh, tailor made for me and for the other guy. The suits were finished. Our suits were finished first. When uh, when the time came to shoot that action scene. There was only two suits available, so you know how it works for, the, for those sci-fi suits. Like, you you cannot wear it if it's not made on your size. It's gonna look like completely ridiculous. It's gonna look baggy. It's gonna look like weird. So, okay, so you have to do the fight scene with uh, the suit with Jackie and the other guy too. So that that fight scene in the opera house, I think it took 13 days to shoot. Yeah, that was long. What is your
0: preference when it comes to uh, a location for a fight scene and do you do you feel like they are able to make uh, on location shoots and like adaptable enough that you can do pretty much the same stuff that you can do in a studio or is the studio really just the end all be all best environment for a good fight shoot
3: uh i would say you know like being uh, in a studio with like you know uh air conditioning and all that stuff, you know, it's the best you can dream of. But unfortunately that never happens. Like sometime you get, you know, a little bit of chance you get, you know, to be in a comfortable wardrobe in a comfortable environment. But this really rarely happen. My advice, I always tell to stunt guys or to action guys is when you go to train, don't train in some nice shorts and a nice tank top and, Bare feet. No, training clothes that are going to make you feel like you're really restricted, like a jean, a pair of shoes, even a jacket or something that is going to make you restricted. Therefore, when you get on movies, you know, like you're going to feel like you can do anything because when you wear, like, for example, when we were doing like the fight scene with like in the Opera House, we are wearing those massive sci-fi outfits looking like robocop you still have to fly in the air put a jerk vest under jerk vest that is super tight and have to do all these like moves and so the facilitation of like where you're gonna be i don't think it's like something they really care about when you're doing a movie like movie work is pretty harsh you know it's kind of like you want to do it? Do it. You don't want to do it? Bye-bye. I'll find another guy.
1: I'm curious about Iron Mask as well and how much of a Jackie Chan movie that is because he's only in it for, what, maybe half an hour or so, I think.
3: That's, that's more like it started, like, I worked on that movie in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it started, uh, you know, if you there's a first movie called V. Yeah. It was a huge success in Russia. And uh, then they they decided to hire Jackie team to do the action. And I think later on, first Jackie team was hired to do the action. Mm-hmm. And then later on, Jackie came in to do a kind of like a cameo.
1: I guess what sequences on that film were you working on?
3: The, the sequence when, um, when the, the car, the car is going through, going through like the snow. And yeah. then they have this battle with the guys. Yeah. I was doubling, uh, the actor who plays, um green Mm -hmm.
1: uh
3: jason flaming that's his name yeah i was doubling him that sequence and we shot that sequence uh in russia in a studio
1: how trained is jintang yao by this point because she seems sort of like one of jackie's proteges almost
3: she she was doubled most of the scene i would say uh, by one of the one of the stunt guy yeah by a girl and then another (laughs) stunt guy yeah
1: wow
2: You've also featured in some Bollywood blockbusters. So I was wondering, like, you know, Tigers, in the Hecta, Tiger, Sultan, which are, like, really, really...
3: What's the difference about uh, working in a... The difference, honestly, like, you know, many people tend to underestimate the power of Bollywood. I would say, like, Bollywood is, like, really, really, like, a place, like, first of all, I love India. Like, that's one of the places where, I, I don't know, like, the people are very nice. Like, so when you arrive, they really take good care of you. They put you in a nice hotel and the productions, like the, the production houses are super professional. They have like huge budgets, huge uh, sets. Um, they travel everywhere to shoot their movies. You know, they, they have like, but the budget of their movies are similar to the budget of many Hollywood movies, even bigger. Some of them. Yeah. And, some of the actors there, believe it or not, like the population, they, they praise them like gods. Like they really, really, really respect them. So, especially the
2: ones you started like Salman Khan. I mean, just growing yeah, up, you was like, Khan. you know, like everybody yes, loves
3: him. Exactly. Salman Khan is like Salman Khan or even Tiger. All of these guys are like super praised. And, uh, for me, you know, it's always been like a great experience going there, you know, like, I I go there, you know, most year maybe two to three times a year to shoot movies, either as a stunt guy or either as, as an actor, or some okay. time even I go there to work as a, a action director sometimes. But um, I always had a good time, you know, like going there. Like, and I do know back in the days when I used to go there first, many people were not going there. Like I was, it was very rare to have like. Uh, foreigner stunt performer going to work in India. But nowadays, if you see many of the movies that you mentioned, like Sultan, that's mm-hmm. uh, Arnold Stoval who did it, which is uh, uh, 87, 8711 stunt coordinator, one of them. Uh, if you look also at um, the other one with Tiger Shroff called War, uh, that is a um, uh, very famous Korean action director who did that movie. They're really like bringing now a lot of outside talent to make their movies look better. And even if you look at a guy like Tiger, for instance, like his physicality, uh, what he can do. It's pretty damn good, right? For like an actor for Bollywood. Back in the days, you know, many people would look at the Bollywood action scenes and they would laugh because they would see a guy flying in the air. And it would look funny. But nowadays, I think they're starting to become more, and more realistic because I think they want to remove that image of being over the top and being like, you know, a little bit like funny.
2: <laughs> I miss that, but yeah, I understand that. <laughs> is is living in
1: Bangkok a sort of strategic decision to be able to access all of these different markets easily?
3: Uh, it was not at first, but later on it became. Uh, I moved to Thailand in 2007 with like a group of friends. We we came here uh, to do um, a casting actually for On Back 2 back in the days. And uh, nobody got anything on the movie. But when I saw the place, when everybody decided to go away, I don't know, I saw potential here. I was like, there, there is something to be done here. I don't know why, but I'm going to stick around and find out what it's, well, what there is to be done here. So I stayed here from 2007 until now and uh, I first started to work locally on you know there was many movies, Hollywood movies shooting uh, in Thailand back in the days or even local productions and uh, then uh, I started to go to work uh, in India and then in China and then started I started to go everywhere basically after that like the whole world. And for me, um, I really like Thailand for many reasons. Number one, uh, it's a very warm place, you know. Number two, the life is very cheap. Like, I don't need to waste money on unnecessary things. I can have, like, a very good lifestyle, eat what I want, have, like, access to amazing fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can have also access, like, to very good places to train, and for me, uh, I speak the language as well. So to me, I became more aware of like, I, I like the place. So it became more like my second home. Mm. When I go back to Europe, I, I like Europe. Don't get me wrong. But when I go back to Europe, I just feel like, you know, there's no place in the world except maybe, I don't know, like in Thailand where I can go out at, I don't know, 3 a.m. to go and do my shopping. I can go out. <laughs> 2 a.m. to have like food and have like a dinner. I can uh, go out at 5 a.m. and uh, find a place like to uh, train. Uh, it, you know, there's not a lot of places in the world that where you can find this kind of access. Also, like, the place is very westernized. Everybody speaks English. You know, the apartments, uh, the living places are very nice and very well managed. So, yeah, for me it was, it was first it was to start a career in the movie business, and after that it became strategic. I was like, okay, well, I'm here now, and I noticed that people are bringing me to England from Thailand, so why do I need to go back to France? Now
2: you're living in the Asian, like the Asian future, man.
3: That's awesome.
2: Yeah, that's I prefer that's amazing.
0: <laughs> but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your work on Vanguard.
3: Okay, so on Vanguard, uh, I got casted uh, to play, um, basically, the the lead bad guy of the movie called Broto and uh, I got casted by Stanley Tong, the director of the movie, but first it was uh, the action director of the movie, Mr. Gong Hua, who introduced me to Stanley Tong and uh, on the film. Uh, I play basically this uh, uh, ex-military who used to uh, be uh, in uh, service in Afghanistan. Basically, I got removed from the army because I did too many kills. Like, there was too many kills I've done that were not (laughs) supposed to be kills. So I got removed from the army, uh, stayed around in Afghanistan, formed my own army unit uh, called the Arctic Wolves, and we are basically doing a lot of dirty work for like, whoever is going to pay us to do that. And in the movie, basically, uh, I'm getting asked to kidnap uh, an accountant. And when I kidnap him, the vanguard, which is uh, a bodyguard, you know, special forces who kind of like taking care of like uh, people with money. And they come in, and the whole story takes place, and then that's it. Yeah. I mean, we've been looking forward to that one, but unfortunately, no. you know. <laughs> oh, I've been looking forward to that one, too. Uh, like,
2: I we shot that here
3: it's out in Saudi Arabia, so maybe you can go to Riyadh <laughs> to watch it, but I don't know. Uh, it, it never, it didn't release anywhere. Like, okay, mm-hmm. it was supposed to, re- It they had a premiere uh, in Beijing, mm-hmm. but then when you was to release on the 25th of January, the, the coronavirus pandemic completely like stopped it. Not only that movie, many other movies, the whole movie itself looked fantastic. I mean, I did my, uh, my dubbing for the movie. Uh, I think I done that uh, last August and I could see most of the movie. And, um, I think it's going to be amazing. Honestly, I think that's going to be one of those movies where, okay. Like, uh, They try to sell the movie like kind of like um, a vehicle for one of the actors in the movie called Yang Yang, the other actor in the movie, the younger uh, guy in the movie. And uh, Jackie is in the movie as well. A lot of people think Jackie is just doing a cameo in the movie. No, he's in the movie a lot, actually. At first, he was supposed to do only a cameo in the movie, but then he got more involved and more involved. But the movie is good, man, like there we have a lot of good action scenes you know we have like uh boat chase in rapid we have like car chases in dubai we have uh, shootings uh in afghanistan like it, it looks very very it's very very well done
1: well
2: nice. we're we're super excited I mean, hopefully it, it comes out soon and we can have you back uh to talk know. about it I in detail all
3: yeah all the work i've done for jackie team that's the one that i'm the most proud of
0: Thank you, Henry Lyon and Brahim Chab, for being on the show. I think that's it for this episode.
1: Our original music comes from Elliot Saltmarsh and Yehuda of Fist with a PH. And our art comes courtesy of Jay Castro.
2: Follow us on Twitter at ChinaFilmPod, like the Uproar in the Studio Facebook page, and if you can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Uproar in the Studio. We would like to assemble a force capable of defending this new Silk Road by ourselves with your help. And if you would like it, have some thoughts or suggestions, email us at UproarInTheStudio all one word, at gmail.com.
1: Next week, we'll be talking about Skip Trace. But before we leave you this week, we just want to share some wisdom from the chairman.
2: To read too many books is harmful. We will see you in a week.